Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care Disability Competent Care webinar series. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on March 15, 2017. This webinar is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes a full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care. In this podcast, Dr. Jorgensen, Associate Medical Director at Outer Cape Health Services, and Dickie Hansen, Director of Behavioral Health, will discuss screening techniques for mental health needs, behavioral health concerns, and chemical abuse and dependencies. Hello, everyone. So today we are going to, uh, the agenda is going to be behavioral health uh, within the disability competent care. Uh, we're going to talk about mental health. We're going to talk about behavioral challenges. And we're going to talk about substance abuse. The behavioral health within the disability competent care, what we really are looking at here is um, wanting to make sure that it is integrated with primary care and the interdisciplinary team. It's really the best practice. Uh, and here at Outer Cape Health, we are working hard to be sure that happens. So behavioral health uh, is really the term we used to call uh, mental health. And then we used substance abuse, and we used chemical dependency, and now we encompasses all of those into the term behavioral health. And uh, with the other, uh, the DCC pillars, the focus is on the functional limitations or barriers experienced by the persons with behavioral health issues. And uh, the DCC organizations have learned that behavioral health care should be integrated with primary care and have found that this is uh, the most effective way to um, deliver services to uh, individuals with disability. There is really health disparities. Um, people with disabilities are much more likely to experience difficulties or delays in accessing both physical and behavioral health care. Um, they experience worse outcomes and are less likely to receive the recommended care. Um, they are much more likely to experience depression and chronic conditions. And um, they are also more likely to experience disabling illnesses such as heart disease, high blood pressure, respiratory disease, etc. And also, they are more likely not to receive comprehensive preventative care. Um, often screenings like mammograms, colonoscopy, what is fairly common, often they don't receive 
that services or it's more difficult for them to receive these services. So I'm going to take over from here. So what Dickie was mentioning was thinking about integration from an individual level, but what are the reasons we want to focus on integration of behavioral health into primary care from a population level? Well, we know that disability status and health disparities are often associated with poor performance on measures that are linked to payment and value-based purchasing programs, so lower diabetes control, lower blood pressure control, less likelihood to um, complete um, recommended cancer screening programs and such. On many measures of focus, like I mentioned, the clinical interventions are straightforward, but communications and service delivery for people with disabilities really stretch the disability competence of most providers. So, you know, how do you, you know, what strategies can you use to help encourage patients to do things that will help improve their health overall? Persons with disabilities have over twice the incidence of mental health problems due to the um, interference with their other disabilities and on top of that socioeconomic factors. Um, finally, addressing the health disparities and social factors can significantly improve outcomes for people with disabilities, having a direct impact on revenue for m many providers and plans. And we know that um, when you compare, for example, a, a patient with um, you know, heart failure, and then on top of that, they also have um, you know, mental illness or substance abuse on top of that, it can dramatically increase the cost to the payer. So why integrate behavioral health and primary care, or how do you do that? So behavioral health and primary care services are typically delivered traditionally in different settings with little coordination integration, which just leads to a lot of uh, miscommunication and a lot of opportunities missed. The fragmented delivery of care, care can be particularly problematic for individuals requiring a wide variety of services to address physical, emotional, and behavioral challenges. So here at Outer Cape Health, we've had um, you know, this great opportunity to work in a, in a co-located manner. So instead of having to refer our patients um, outside of our organization for behavioral health services, the services are integrated in this uh, much better outcomes for the patients and for the communities as a whole. So increasingly, behavioral health is integrated into primary care settings across the United States. Um, and some health plans, uh, integrated health plans, are also starting to embed um, primary care into behavioral health clinics. So there are movements for um, integration, you know, for example, for patients whose primary problem is schizophrenia, um, it might be better for them to have a um, established behavioral health clinic for which an internist or a family medicine physician or mid-level comes and, and takes care of the patient in that behavioral health setting. Uh, here at Outer Cape Health, we've, um, we've integrated the behavioral health into the primary care setting. So there are a lot of behavioral health concerns amongst um, dual-eligible Medicare Medicaid enrollees. Um, we know that 40% of um, Medicare Medicaid-eligible enrollees who are under 65 have a mental health diagnosis, and it's that mental health diagnosis which often um, creates their eligibility for their Medicaid. Um, Medicare Medicaid spending is twice as high for individuals with a serious mental illness. We think we alluded to that a little earlier and healthcare utilization and costs are twice as high in, like I was mentioning earlier, like in a diabetes or heart disease patient who also has depression. We know that nas nationally, um, you know, uh, this was a few years ago, but 
217 million days of work are lost annually to related mental illness and substance use disorders, costing employers an estimated $17 billion a year. There was another study that showed clearly that effective depression treatment in primary care lowered total health care costs by um, $3,300 per patient over 48 months. So not only is this the right thing to do, it's also effective um, both from a uh, outcomes uh, standpoint for patients as it is for um, cost savings. So we're going to transition to talking more specifically about how mental health is addressed in the primary care setting. Um, DCC defines mental health from a functional perspective where it is viewed as a state of well-being in which participants realize their own potential, can cope with the stresses of life, can work product productively and fruitfully, and are able to make contributions to their community. So it's restoration of functionality um, that's the focus. So we do screen patients for depression in the primary care setting, as many different um, primary care health centers are doing. We know that the incidence of depression and anxiety are, is higher among adults living with functional limitations or, or disabilities. We also know that depression and anxiety can be a primary disability or it can be secondary to the direct result of the patient's life as a disabled individual. In the end, though, the important thing is to identify the patients, the people who have um, behavioral health issues and be able to um, institute treatments. So it's important that the um, integrated delivery team assess each participant for depression and anxiety and discuss the results with the participant and develop plans accordingly. And there are several validated tools that allow us to do that, and the, one that, the ones that we use here at um, the health center and are being used by many health centers across the country. Um, are the PHQ-9 for the assessment of depression and the GAD-7 for assessment of anxiety. And these screening tools basically use the, um, the established um, definitions for depression and anxiety to help um, identify those with those conditions. We have found it incredibly beneficial to include mental health professionals in the interdisciplinary team. And that's a key value of the DCC model because each participant with a mental health concern needs is able to rapidly and quickly have the input involvement of a mental health professional or specialist. Not all persons with disabilities present with a mental health concern, but by screening these individuals, you're able to identify those who do have an issue and um, have an intervention early when an issue um, presents itself. So, a person with a disability may not initially have anxiety or depression or a substance use problem, which we'll talk about later, but it may become apparent later um, in their um, involvement with the interdisciplinary team. And that's why it's important to have the uh, mental health professional readily available and accessible to the, um, to the patient. We're going to talk a little bit about um, having specialists in the behavioral health network. Um, 
although primary care providers have um, significant training in these issues, they often uh, feel uncomfortable dealing with patients with more complex problems. So, for example, a patient, um, you know, as an internal medicine physician, I feel very comfortable in treating a patient for initial treatment of depression using um, standard therapies, but when a patient may require more than one um, medication or more complex treatment plans, it becomes important to have a um, a, a team a mental health professional involved. Um, and that's basically what the first point refers to. And most importantly, keeping the, um, it, you know, there are times and there are health centers where the behavioral health um, specialist is not embedded into the team within the clinic. And it's at those times where having great communication and relationships with external behavioral health providers becomes important. And that's what this point's all about. It's really um, having designated communication pathways from the interdisciplinary team in the clinic with um, specialists who are in the network but maybe not co-located um, physically with the um, primary care team. It's very important that the interdisciplinary team keeps external specialists up to date with their observations of the impacts of the behavioral health interventions and um, progress towards goals. So that communication point is very important. So we're going to tell us a little story of, um, that's adapted from one of the patients we've uh, cared for here to illustrate the point of the success of integration. So this is Nancy's story. And Nancy is in her early 60s, and she lives with her partner in a small town in the Midwest. Um, she recently moved to a um, new rural community in the northeast of the, um, of the country. Um, she was on hormone replacement medications, and prior to moving, her doctor wanted to stop these medications, and she had the goal of reducing her antidepressant medications. So, unfortunately, the stress of the move and the changes in her medicines, she developed um, extensive diarrhea and, and recurrent panic attacks, panic attacks so disabling that she was unable to really leave the home or um, participate with her community, or as important when moving to a new communi community, she was unable to really develop new relationships. So when she came to the Northeast, she developed a, um, she decided she wanted to have a new primary care provider, and she was able to establish a relationship with that individual. And that provider was um, in the clinic was supporting an integrated um, behavioral health model. So it was identified that um, she needed, you know, she, and she agreed to actually um, a quick um, referral to the, the therapist who was working in the clinic. So at that point, she agreed to see a social worker at the clinic. And Dickie will tell you what happened once she saw the social worker. Yeah, so uh, she um, came to see me and um, was very perplexed about why she was as anxious and what was uh, going on with her because she thought possibly it had to do with her medication um, and the reason that when she took got off the medication that maybe this is why she was so anxious. She was, she was also very depressed. Um, and as she and I started to work together, it really um, was um, 
pretty evident that she had just uh, retired. Uh, She used to be very active in her work and got a lot out of work. And uh, all of a sudden, here she has retired. She doesn't know anybody in this new town. And there was a lot of um, social factors uh, that had to do with her uh, depression and anxiety um, in addition to the medication. And so uh, being able to discuss this um, with uh, Andy and also she was willing to see our clinic psychiatrist uh, for the medication consultation. And um, the fact that she had spent so much time wondering, is this physical or is this emotional? Um, Being able to let her know that there was a little bit of both and that uh, her care people, uh, her primary care psychiatrist and myself are working together to help her accept that combination of physical and emotional uh, struggles. she was willing to go back to uh, try another antidepressant uh, and a new, um, well, actually, we looked at the anxiety part um, first and a new anti-anxiety medication was prescribed. And then she was also willing to return to the hormone replacement at a very different uh, dosage, and it was much more effective for her. She's doing really well. Uh, She continues to see me weekly, um, but she's back into being able to um, put structure into her life. She's um, doing a lot more of her art that she always wanted to do uh, when she couldn't, when she was uh, working, and she's being able to do more of that, but she is realizing she needs structure in her life. that work used to provide to her, and that has taken care of her anxiety to a great extent. Uh, And she's also making new friends, and uh, her relationship uh, with her wife is much, much better. Um, We've done some couples therapy also in addition to um, the individual. So that was Nancy, um, and that has really worked really well. Uh, And I know if I had worked with Nancy in a traditional outpatient um, mental health clinic, um, we wouldn't have been able to look at the issues of the hormone replacement that really was so uh, integral part of her um, problems. And so it was so helpful for me to have um, Dr. Jorgensen or Andy to to consult with all of that. Um, so anyway, we are uh, going moving on here, uh, and we want to look at some behavioral challenges. And um, in this context, when we talk about behavioral challenges, are those that impede the participants' ability to function in their home and community. Um, within their family and peer relationships and their work. Um, It is very important that behavioral health challenges are being incorporated in the initial assessment and and following assessments. 
Um, and it is really important then to look at um, where are their struggles in their home, in their family, with peers, what kinds of things gets in the way for them to function well. Also at work, what are some of the behavioral issues that um, are barriers for them? And if we identify some of the challenges, then it's really important uh, to work with them and their care partners uh, to identify um, the behavior and then what are the triggers for that. Um, and then from there, a plan can be developed to reduce uh, the barriers and develop alternative responses or alternative uh, behaviors. And um, often the interdisciplinary team involve a behavior specialist from the community to address these concerns. Um, at Outer Cape um, Health, and we are in a rural community, we do not have behaviorist specialists available to us. And so, but so several of our social workers have um, behavioral changes. Um, they are not specialists, but they certainly have experiences in uh, behavioral changes, and so we use their resources. Um, I would guess that for many of you uh, around that having a behaviorist specialist is not available as much as we would like to, because behavioral challenges can be complex. Um, they require an understanding of the cause and the participant's ability to control and adopt more functional behaviors. And so um, it is also really important as we set up um, a behavioral challenge um, treatment plan that we really include that with uh, the primary care physician and the uh, individual treatment plan, plan so that everybody is on the same page with this. Um, it is not common to have a behaviorist attend, though, the individual, uh, um, I'm sorry, uh, the IDT meeting, uh, but coordination is really important. The other aspect of behavioral health, so we talked about mental health and screening for mental health, is substance abuse. And so from a DCC perspective, substance use becomes an issue to be addressed if or when it interferes with the participant's ability to function in their home and their community, their family and peer relationships and their work, which is really part of the definition of dependency. And so just like depression and anxiety, we're now screening for substance use in the primary care setting. So um, it's highly rec recommended that screening for substance use be included in all initial and subsequent assessments. It really normalizes the issue with participants and gives them an opportunity to discuss it openly. So every physical that's done in the primary care setting, we ask, we screen for alcohol dependency. And similarly, every um, initial or subsequent assessment from a DCC perspective, um, likewise, there should be screening. In practice, 
the participant may not be comfortable divulging their use until they have a higher level of trust with their interdisciplinary team or with a specific member of the interdisciplinary team. Um, over time, you know, you may see signs of use that doesn't come out on the screening, but you may want to address it at that time anyways. So um, I'll, I'll talk about the screening methods shortly, but we're going to talk about um, how you address the substance abuse needs prior to, you know, once once a problem is identified. So the per the point of, of screening is really to determine if a patient is not at risk, at risk, or with addiction. So when a patient is not at risk, that's a good opportunity for education about promoting healthy norms. So, uh, for example, I, I might ask a patient, um, you know, would you like to talk about safe drinking? And, you know, from there, um, give further information. For patients at risk, but maybe not with addiction or dependency, um, again, you can educate about risks and then help the patient create a plan to moderate, you know, risks. So instead of having, you know, two glasses of wine every night, having a plan to, you know, maybe only drink two or three times a week or maybe one time per, per night. Um, and then within the integrated model, having the ability to refer either within the integrated team or externally to a um, a developed partner referral for specialty uh, addiction treatment. So what are the methods we use to screen for substance abuse? Um, we use a two-phase screening technique. So there's the one question in IAAA1 for alcohol, um, and then the one question in IDA1, and we'll talk about more about that in a second, and that one's for drug abuse. And then basically if the initial screening's positive, this allows you to screen lots of people in a, in a pretty effective and quick manner and to normalize it. But um, there's the um, audit and the DAS-10, which are, are 10 question screening tools used to um, explore more in more depth. So the basic idea is the initial screening doesn't um, provide risk. It, it just, or I should I should say, it doesn't provide degree of risk. It just allows you to know is the patient at risk or not. And then the more formal screening um, helps you better um, define the degree of risk. So basically, you'll see on. Um, we'll catch up on the slides here. We're gonna move on to the screening protocol, which you see before yourself now. And you can see how it's really um, summarized nicely here, where if, you know, either or both the um, initial screeners are, are negative, you reinforce the healthy behavior. Um, if either is positive, then it goes on to um, either or both um, more advanced screening tool. And then, um, that then leads to the ability to um, use motivational interviewing and other behavioral change techniques to set up a plan with the patient. Now, you may think, oh, this is all being done by the behavioral health member of the team, but actually it's not. Um, throughout primary care, there's now a focus on training the primary care team how to actually do some of these brief interventions saving the um, behaviorists and the behavioral health professionals for the more uh, complicated um, situations. So I'm going to have Dickie now speak a little bit to, you know, the stages of change and how we actually help participants recognize um, and, and, and deal with their um, uh, substance abuse. In terms of helping uh, people 
start to recognize their substance abuse is to establish rapport, um, develop relationships. Uh, no substance abuse person will say, oh, I have a problem, unless they feel like they can trust the person. And this is where it's so important that primary care, the primary care physician um, are doing some of the initial screening. Um, and we are talking a little bit here about motivational interviewing um, and the established rapport. And then also starting to increase the participant's perception of uh, the risk related to current behavior. And then that's the pre-contemplation stage. Uh, we get go into then contemplation, and that is uh, we want to elicit reasons for change, uh, risks of not changing, uh, and elicit self-motivational statements. Um, and it's important that this is not something we are telling them, but that they themselves are able to come up with some of these uh, thinking uh, and what is what is really good about your drinking? What gets you in trouble with your drinking? Um, and as they are moving more and thinking about maybe wanting to stop, then we also need to prepare them and, uh, and offer a menu of options for change or treatment. Um, so many uh, have a very limited view of what um, treatments are available, and by offering uh, the many different options they have, uh, it can also help them step closer to uh, taking action. Um, and when the action stage is there, um, then we need to support a realistic view of change through small steps. Um, and then it isn't just to stop, but then how do I prevent relapse and being able to help the participant identify new strategies to uh, prevent relapse. Um, and then relapse, explore the reality of relapse as a learning opportunity. Because if it's one thing that we know is that relapse happens and it's um, one can expect that and let's use it to learn to move on forward. And so it needs to be a step care approach because when you, if people are um, just maybe doing a little bit too many drinks now and then, um, we will use a different approach than if they are very deeply involved in their abuse. In early stages, relatively simply ed education and discussion is maybe all that's needed. If in later stages, they may benefit from self-monitored reductions in their usage and having someone to discuss their ability to self-control. If they are unsuccessful in their self-control, they may benefit for stronger intervention, such as formal treatment approach. Um, and so, what are what are the models that we are using uh, to 
promote recovery. And um, this recovery model that we want to talk to you about has been very, very um, helpful uh, and has shown through research that it is um, very helpful. So the 10 guiding principles of the model includes, and this is the important piece. Number one, we want to make sure that we instill hope. And often that isn't the issue so much for all mental health difficulties, and that is the, the lack of hope. We want to make sure that the recovery model and uh, the treatment model is person-driven. It's not us telling them how they should succeed. It is helping them come up with ways that works for them. Um, and it occurs through multiple pathways. Um, recovery helps with primary care, with mental health, with AA, with the neighbor's support, with family support. There are so many pathways that can be helpful. And um, we talked about the community, we talked about the peers and allies, um, and also such relationships as social workers and uh, professionals. But it's important that we build a stronger foundation of support from the community and from their peers and, and families. It needs to be culturally based and influenced. Again, it needs to be holistic. It needs to be part of looking at the whole person, their emotional, physical, and spiritual uh, person, the whole person. Um, it needs to be trauma-informed, and it needs to be based on respect. And um, this recovery model is a self-help approach to address behavioral health needs based on four major dimensions, health, home, purpose, and community. So for everyone in behavioral health recovery, making informed healthy choices that support physical and emotional well-being is the first step of recovery. The health component of the recovery model focuses on managing and overcoming one's behavioral health disability, substance abuse, or symptoms that interfere with their overall health. For example, abstaining from the use of alcohol, illicit drugs, and non-prescribed medication if one has an addiction problem, or attending Overeaters Anonymous. Home is very important. Uh, home needs to be a safe, stable, and comfortable place to live. So addressing the home environment includes dealing with the relationships with the others in the home. Um, and whether these relationships will be conducive to continued recovery. Uh, the interdisciplinary team needs to both assess and address challenges with or in the home environments. 
such as physical access, ability to pay rent and utilities, and access to adequate food. I mean, really looking at the whole picture for this person who is wanting to move towards recovery. Probably one of the most important pieces of recovery is for a person to have purpose. Um, Every individual needs purpose in their life. Um, With Nancy that they talked about before, all of a sudden she had quit her work and all of a sudden she had no purpose. And this really contributed to her anxiety. Um, When we talk about purpose, that can be a job, uh, but it can also be family caretaking, uh, being creative. I talked about again with Nancy starting her art that um, she loved to do. Um, But other purpose, it's giving or supporting others. Um, It's a means of providing purpose. I have a patient who, um, he goes to AA meetings um, but mostly because he feels that his um, what he has to contribute there really helps others. And that has become his purpose. Um, and lastly here, community. Every individual, regardless of ability, needs a community in their life beyond their family. And so often what we see is that um, people with disability often are isolated. And um, encouraging the support of a community um, and often encouraging people to access um, either going to church, community um, centers, to go to sports, whatever is interesting to to the patient and getting them involved in the community. And these relationships then and social networks will provide support, friendship, love, and hope. This is certainly one of the more important pillars, again, to recovery. So I'm going to – we have one more patient or – individual to talk about. I know time is getting short. Um, we're going to talk about Kevin, um, and it'll kind of illustrate these um, different um, important um, aspects of the recovery model. So Kevin's a primary care patient with mental illness and chemical abuse that had evolved over decades. And through his 20s and 30s, he worked a variety of jobs, um, and in these jobs there were a lot of drugs and alcohol as part of the culture. We often see this in, like, the restaurant industry, lobstermen, a lot of different things like that. Um, In his early 40s, he got married and he started a family, which gave him some motivation to try to get a professional job to help provide for his family and raise his kids. His overall life stabled, but he continued to struggle with his depression and was getting higher drunk nearly every day. Over the next decade into his 50s, he was in and out of rehabilitation. He lost the job he loved, and he ended up getting divorced, losing a lot of the important um, pillars of life. Um, And this was all coexisting with his chemical dependency, increasingly depressed and struggled with an anxiety disorder. Um, 
during this time, he'd had a, a long-term relationship with his primary care a physician um, who would who would continue to talk with him through um, throughout this time about his depression and um, importance of sobriety. But at that point, the patient Kevin wasn't um, ready to address that. Um, as the primary care and behavioral health became more integrated, and um, the therapist was um, in the site, he was um, eventually agreed to see that person. And sometimes, and that's another thing that helps by having integrated um, behavioral health, you can often bring that team individual to the exam room to see the patient um, just as an introduction, you know, a warm handoff so that that becomes a familiar face and is more likely to um, result in, in that person in need engaging with the behavioral health um, provider. So uh, finally, it took... Uh, several different therapists before Kevin actually settled on the one that he felt a connection with. Um, once he found a therapist for him, he was able to see the impact of his usage and he was able to maintain the sobriety. It was a very difficult path to wellness. Um, he lived in a halfway house, but um, with the help of the therapist, he was able to keep focus and uh, finally living on his own and moving forward and um, acknowledging his addiction and mental illness. Today he has a steady job, he maintains good relationships with his kids and their mother, and he is living independently. But as you can see, there were some important self-management strategies which included, um, you know, support group and creating some purpose through AA. Um, and he developed a gratitude list to help him focus on the positives in life. So acknowledging the strengths that he had um, helped him to maintain his own sobriety. So we're going to end today with a few remarks from Dickie. Um, I think that's the last part that I'm going to talk about, so I thank you for listening to me. And after Dickie's available, I will uh, be around for questions as well. Yeah, I just wanted to end um, this session with saying um, I have spent 30-some years working in uh, social service agencies. Um, I have been a therapist um, and administrator, and um, the last two years I have spent uh, in our behavioral health clinic that's integrated into primary care. Um, and what I have seen of effective outcomes have been astounding. Um, I will so highly recommend for all of you to work really close to your primary care uh, physicians uh, and having an interdisciplinary team to serve the patients you're working with. Um, and um, if you have any questions about how to do that, please uh, ask us um, because uh, what we have done here at Outer Cape Health has been very, very helpful for our patients and uh, has taught me very much about primary care that I never knew before. So uh, just wanted to conclude with that. Thank you for listening. <laughs>